Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Mitch Light will be our guest today. This episode was recorded on Monday and aired on Tuesday, so that will explain some of the disconnect between what we discuss in the podcast and some later events that we'll get into later, which include the rescheduling of Vanderbilt's game with Tennessee. Mitch Light appears today on our guest line. The guest line is presented by Bowl and Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable Bowl and Branch sheets could be until I got some. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code VANDY and get $50 off your first set of sheets. The title sponsor of our podcast this year is Jody Jones DDS, trusted for his creative design and committed to both the function and aesthetics of your smile. Jody Jones provides a range of sought-after dental and cosmetic dentistry services at his practice in Nashville. He's earned the title of number one in Nashville for his cosmetic dentistry and provides a unique luxury environment for patients who want his famous Hollywood smile or other services. Patients enjoy getting services from Dr. Jones and his attentive team in a spy-like atmosphere. Dr. Jones has worked with many artists, movie stars, and celebrities over the years and is dedicated to providing first-rate results to all of his patients. He never compromises quality so patients can be confident they will always receive the highest level of care. Thank you to Jody Jones DDS for making this season of the podcast possible. The news today presented by our friends at Sutherland & Belk, a Nashville-based injury law firm. Sutherland & Belk is committed to fighting for those who have been injured in car, motorcycle, and truck accidents. Check them out at sbinjurylaw.com. Well, there has been a schedule switcheroo in the Southeastern Conference. Vanderbilt's game with Tennessee is being postponed and it will now play Missouri and Columbia this week, and that game has now been rescheduled four times over four months. So the Commodores set to go to Columbia, Missouri on Saturday to face the Tigers, and the Tennessee game reschedule has not been officially announced yet, but look for that to be December the 12th in Nashville. Mitch Light joins me where he is a college football editor at The Athletic. Mitch, we appreciate you joining us today. Hope you and your family have a great Thanksgiving week. It is crazy times that we are living in. It is crazy, and we're just not to dive too deep into that. We're trying to figure out the logistics of Thanksgiving. Uh, not my daughter's got a, uh, a, I guess, contact tracing issue with a with something that happened at school early last week. So we're we're trying to navigate, and we'll figure it out one way or the other to get all get us all uh, in under one roof. Well, there seems to be contact tracing issues everywhere. I heard there might be some issues on the Tennessee end for the game this weekend. Uh, Vanderbilt, I think, may have some, not roster issues with being able to play, but there's a situation I'm sort of monitoring right now that it'd be premature for me to speak on. And then we're having basketball games canceled all day. I mean, there's probably games being canceled. There are probably games that are on as we start the podcast that'll be off by the time we're done. So it's just you almost have to be an air traffic controller to monitor everything that goes on these days. Yeah, you think that if the Tennessee game gets canceled, Derek Mason should pull a Dabo Sweeney. I don't know if you saw his comments today and basically blame, you know, Dabo blame Florida State for basically just not wanting to play and not a COVID issue. Just in, So I think Derek Mason should get on there and just say how Tennessee didn't want to play Vanderbilt and just uh, let it all hang out there. Yeah, why not? But, yeah. <laughs> Not, not his style, obviously. Well, I was listening to a Gary Parrish podcast earlier today, and apparently the perception is from some coaches in the community that COVID is being used as sort of an excuse to maybe get out of some games that people don't want to play and those sorts of things. So you just never know. I do think it's a real issue that needs to be respected, and 
I can give you lots of good reasons for the safety concerns. I wouldn't argue with those, but it does seem like there is an element to this uh, to, that has aroused some suspicion in terms of teams canceling games and such. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, I think from a competitive standpoint, earlier in the year, it might have made some sense for some teams to not want to play when there was confidence that they could reschedule the game later in the year. I, no doubt that hap- that that uh, has happened. It's just it's not a good look for someone like Dabo Sweeney to get on and accuse Florida State of that. I mean, there's no there's no nothing to be gained. And then I love Mike Norvell's comments came back and because Dabo was complaining that I think they spent three hundred thousand dollars traveling down there, the charter and all that. And Mike Norvell. Florida State coach like, no, we want to play. We'll play them whenever. And if they need to raise some funds, if they're, I'll donate to their to their to the cause to raise some money. That would have been awesome if Mike Norvell just wrote Clemson a three hundred thousand dollar check. But I I don't see that happening. Yeah, I don't see that happening either. Well, we'll touch back on college football and the SEC later. Maybe some hoops talk. Well, let's talk Vandy, Florida first. What were your takeaways from that one? Well, it was a pretty entertaining game, and obviously, from an offensive standpoint, Vanderbilt did a lot of good things early. Um, for a team that's come out had such slow starts, it was a positive that they came out and, and played well early. Um, I mean, the stat: this is four straight games with 400 yards uh, of total offense. And I looked back using the uh, play index on CollegeFootballReference.com. Vanderbilt has not had more than two because I looked at last week after they had three. They had not had three straight SEC games of 400 plus yards dating back to 1980. Uh, I mean, back to 2000. So now they've had four straight. It might be the first time in school history. So, I mean, obviously the record is what it is, uh, but they've gone from fewer than 200 yards in their first three games to 400 plus yards in their last three games. So clearly things are, uh, are coming around offensively. In doing so with not much continuity on the running back position, um, you know, it would have been nice to, to have a full stable back there. But I, I want to credit Mitchell Pryor. If you didn't know he was a walk-on, um, you'd think he almost belongs out there. He had some nice runs, and, you know, I think we talked briefly about him last week. He played well in the Kentucky game. So um, no surprise that Vanderbilt had some struggles defensively against Florida. Everyone does. You know, as I've said many times on this podcast, I work with the Florida writer at the Athletics. So I've pretty much seen every snap. Uh, Kyle Trask is as good as it gets at the quarterback position, and they have a lot of weapons. So, you know, Vanderbilt did some decent things at times on, on defense. And not that this would have been a big deal, but that late hit on Grant Miller was one of the weaker calls you'll see. Um, and that was a huge call in the game. I think Vanderbilt was down 14 points, but that was just really, really weak. Um, but, yeah, so – Again, it's a, it's a loss, a 21-point loss. But if you're looking for some positive, clearly some positives on offense. Um, you know, the wide receivers, Bresnahan getting more involved in the game there. So kind of kind of rambling, but but uh, at least it was it was an entertaining game. Yeah, Bruno Reagan and I just finished a podcast. This one, the one that he and I did, has aired by the time people hear this one. This one will probably air Tuesday morning as we do this on Monday afternoon. But I thought that's one of the more poorly officiated games I had seen in a while. Yeah, I'm trying to think what else. Um, well, the touchdown that shouldn't have been right before half was one right. thing. The horse collar on Pierce was another that wasn't called. I mean, those right. were just – to me, you miss calls, right? But it's the obvious right. ones that you should get that troubled me. It, like, like, the, like the late hit. I mean, the guy's staring – did Miller push him away from the play? Yeah, he barely pushed him, and then he got pushed even harder. Not saying I'm not saying at all it should have been a foul on Florida, but just have some sense of the game. It wasn't a chippy game up to that point. It's not like the refs trying to, you know, it's two heated rivals and there's 100,000 people there and it's trying to, you know, nip something in the bud. It was just a soft little push that had nothing to do with it, and it wasn't against the quarterback. It was against another offensive lineman. It was just really poor judgment right there. And I, The touchdown – I don't think it was a catch. I mean, it wasn't a catch, but I'm not shocked they didn't overturn that. Um, but, yeah, uh, I didn't really notice a ton else. Um, trying to think any pass interference penalties or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, that, that some, of, some of the stuff that went on was a little disappointing. Let's talk Tennessee heading into this game. I don't know how much of the Vols you got to watch. I watched probably two-thirds of the game. Jarrett Garantano under a ton of heat up there. Eric Gray has really been great for them recently. I expect he's going to get 
30-something touches. That's what I'd do if I were Jeremy Pruitt. But I'm starting to hear some talk of he better win this one or it's his job kind of discussions coming out of Knoxville. Yeah, I, I haven't, you know, really not plugged into the Knoxville side. You know, I hear things and stuff. They owe him a lot of money. It's Phil Fulmer's guy. Maybe I'm naive. And I know losing to Vanderbilt does not play well there. So, I, you know, it, it depends on what happens this weekend. But with all the COVID situation and the money there, and again, Phil Fulmer hiring him, I'm still thinking that it's a very strong chance he's back next year. Now, if they lose this game and they get blown out by Florida, that's 2-8, and eight, and that's a terrible look, clearly not improving. Um, but, you know, they're a team that, I hate to say this, it's better than their record. Like they, they have some really good parts. And I'm not just talking recruiting and talent. You watch them. Eric Gray is very, very good. And he really hurt Vanderbilt last year. Like you mentioned, uh, I mean, he was very good in Auburn game and he hurt Vanderbilt last year. He, he would be, he's going to be a big concern for Vanderbilt. If it's no longer proper to say if Garantano takes care of the ball, cause he doesn't take care of the ball. But as long as they don't implode offensively, I see why they're a 10 point favorite over Vanderbilt. That, that surprised me at first, but then I can say, you look at the numbers, we're seeing Vanderbilt improving offensively, uh, but it's still an 0 seven team that has horrid defensive numbers. Um, again, playing much better offensively. So, you know, I, I, I see why Tennessee's favorite. I probably would have had the spread about six and a half. Nothing really would surprise me in this game. I think Vanderbilt is playing, you know, credit Derek Mason, that they're, they're playing hard. They're playing with uh, emotion. I can see Tennessee, if they get down early. Uh, I keep saying it's about Tennessee, if they get down early, but they keep getting up early and then they collapse in the second half. So maybe I need to change my thinking. Maybe from a Vanderbilt standpoint, you want Tennessee ahead, seven nothing or 14 nothing. So um I think Tennessee's a pretty dangerous two and five team or two and whatever their record. Yeah. Two and five. Cause they've got a lot of good parts, but they're clearly, you know, the, the, it's a program that's playing. You can sense it. It's playing. It, it feels the pressure. You can just watch the game. You can just sense it. Maybe it's cause Garantano has been there five years and that's just a long time to be a quarterback at ten- or play at Tennessee. Uh, but there's always intrigue in this game. And to me, there's still a ton of intrigue this year, even though the team have the teams have combined for two wins. Well, seems like games rarely play out the way you think they will. There's always the variables of randomness in there. But on the front end, not knowing anything about how this is going to pan out, I see this generally going one of two different ways. I see this as being Tennessee wins, maybe not convincingly like 30 points or something, but where Gray just kind of pounds them and they don't have an answer. And Garantano makes enough throws because Vanderbilt just I don't know that they could intercept the pass against you and I right now, Almost it almost seems. That's, that's a little disrespectful, but they just can't make plays on the ball, so I don't see where him putting the ball in the air is as risky, but they have a ground game and a good offensive line where I think Tennessee can win up front in that and just make it a boring game and maybe walk out with a 24-17 type of win. That's one way I see it. The other way is – Vanderbilt just gets up for this game, Mitch. It seems like Vanderbilt's best game it plays for many of the last 10 years has been against Tennessee. And the kids, the players get sick of hearing about UT this and UT that. And it means a lot to those guys. You've got an offense that's gaining momentum. You've got a young quarterback in Ken Seals who's confident. You've got a team that I think seems to have a lot more to play for then does UT right now. So, again, with things going wrong in Knoxville and the pressure on, you know, you saw this in 2017, and Bruno Reagan talked about it on our podcast. They sensed that as soon as Tennessee got down, okay, this is over. These guys are sort of folding. It sort of sets up as one of those scenarios, too. So, I don't know how this plays out, but to me, there's two very obvious scenarios where you can see either team winning. Yeah, and – um Last year's game was sort of like the one you're describing, where it felt like more of a blowout than it was. Eric Gray hit him for some for some big plays, like the long touchdown run. I think the final ended up being like 24 to 10. It was more methodical, you know, uh, beating than a than a dominant one. Um, and Bruno could answer this a lot better than I could. But as someone who was around the program for seven and a half years, it I. 
you, you wouldn't know Vanderbilt's record from just traveling with the team or being in the locker room before the game or on the sidelines. You really wouldn't know if it was Vanderbilt at seven and four under James Franklin or three and eight under Derek Mason at the time of the game. Point being, like you said, it's a game that Vanderbilt gets up for. The players who are on the program, they know that they can their legacy, a lot of their legacy is is how they do against Tennessee. And you got guys like Kyle Shermer, who I'm sure he's not the most vocal guy, but he's he's with the program this year as an assistant. Jordan Matthews is a volunteer assistant. Those guys had a lot of success against Tennessee. So not that the players need any any guidance on that, but they, they'll they get it from those guys that, that this is an important game for this program, no matter what your record is. So, yeah, I, I could definitely see. And, you know, again, ten, from a personnel standpoint, is, is Tennessee better than Florida defensively. I don't think so, but they're probably pl- they're playing better than Florida has been. So, but I see nothing to suggest that Vanderbilt won't move the ball offensively. Because look, they, they Mississippi State, Kentucky, Florida has good personnel. Vanderbilt's been moving the ball against some pretty good defensive defenses. Um, so I, I'd be surprised. I'm not sure how much they'll score because converting yards into points has been a problem. But I think Vanderbilt will move the ball. It's just can Vanderbilt slow down. The rushing attack, which will make life easy for if they don't slow it down, that makes life easy for Jared Garantano, and then then Tennessee becomes much more difficult to stop. UT week, you and I have seen a ton of Vanderbilt Tennessee games between us. Give me your two or three outstanding memories of that series. Good, bad, whatever. <laughs> um, a couple of them come to mind. My um sophomore year, I was covering the game for the Hustler in 1990. And Tennessee clinched the Rose Bowl. And this was, you know, well before, I don't know what the crowd split was back then. It was probably 50-50, you know, back in the 90s, you know, when I was in school. So it wasn't like all Tennessee fans there, but there was a lot of Tennessee fans in the end zone. And, you know, when you're covering a game, you go down on the field afterwards, last few minutes. And I remember getting pelted by sugar cubes from Tennessee fans because they were going to the Sugar Bowl. So that's 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 one memory. Um, I remember the year after I graduated, it was... Uh, Vanderbilt was five and five. Well, here's a funny, here's another funny story. I, I recently did a story on Derek Gregg for Vanderbilt magazine freelance. Who's, you know, people remember Derek Gregg, uh, played football early nineties at Vanderbilt and, uh, went on to be the AD at Eastern Michigan and Tulsa now just took a position with the NCAA. Um, and we were just talking about the 92 game. I guess that would have been my senior year. Um, no, Donardo's first year, 91, I guess. And Vanderbilt's five and five, goes down to Knoxville looking for its Vanderbilt's looking for its first bowl game since 82. And the, the Vanderbilt gets in a pregame fight. And Greg was like, Yeah, we we were just having some fun, talking a little bit. You know, we didn't think too much of the fight. We go into our locker room, we get calmed down. Well, we find after the fact that that really riled up Tennessee and they were talking about us and, you know, talking to some of their players later and how that got them going. And it was a 44 nothing game. So Greg's like, maybe we shouldn't have gotten to a fight that game. And then um the year after I graduated, Vanderbilt again was five and five. Turned out to be Jerry Donaro's last game. I was trying to convince my friend Bill, Bill Trochi, who I did the Commodore report with. I was living in New York and he was in Boston. Just drive down to the game. Screw it. You know, we, let's just get in the car. It's 15 hours. Let's go. He's like, no, I can't do it. And I was really getting on him. I wanted to go. And then it was like 21 nothing Tennessee after like five minutes. And I called him and I said, Good thing we didn't go to the game. And that was obviously 65-0, Jerry Donaro's last game there. But uh, I think my favorite, one of, one of the coolest scenes, of atmospheres, and just was was the game in 2013, uh, the Pat and Robinette play in Knoxville. Just the way that game unfolded, the last 80-yard drive, and the way they win that game with Pat and Robinette, a kid from Maryville, Tennessee, uh, in the postgame locker room. So that was great. Um you know, Ralph Webb, even the game didn't mean much, but Ralph Webb had a great game. His his last game as a as, as a Vanderbilt Commodore. So, you know, there, there's been there's been a lot of, of fun, especially recently because Vanderbilt's done well. It's been a from a Vanderbilt standpoint, it's been a pretty pretty eventful rivalry. Yeah, I think my first overriding memory of that series was '05, and I went to Knoxville's in the press box for that one. And of course, Vanderbilt punched the ball away with the. You know, two, three minutes to play, and you're thinking everything's like, If there were Twitter perfect. now, uh, Bobby Johnson would have been, would be getting crucified. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't think that was the right decision. Now, it ended well. That They, they got, I want to say, from memory, 
Tennessee has like a third and seven with a minute and change left, and they run a sweep with Arian Foster to a right, to the right, and Jared Fagan dives at ankle is at ankles and gets him with about a yard short of the first down. So they get the ball back. Cutler throws four to Bennett, and they get a touchdown with, I don't know, under a minute left. And then Tennessee gets the ball back and then gets to the, what was it, the Vandy 28 or so, and they got time for one play left. And I'm just sitting there going, okay, I've watched this game end in Tennessee's favor every year from 83 on, and it just you just know it's going to happen, that Tennessee's going to make the play and win the game. And instead, Rick Clawson throws one up, and Jared Fagan makes an easy pick. Uh, and, and that's that. I think that's the biggest one was just that game. I went back up there in 07 when Vanderbilt completely had that one under control, and then Broderick Stewart runs into the punter, and that one got unwound. And then I think the other one was 2012, the game that was here, uh, that was Derek Dooley against James Franklin. I remember sometimes you can go on the field before the game's over. I almost never do because I've got writing and stuff to do to get into the post-game locker room or the press conference afterwards. And so I went on the field because I just wanted to see, okay, what's that one like when it's over? Because that one was settled several minutes before the game was over. I just remember walking around that field and just, I guess they let more people on the field then than they do now. Uh, But there were just tons of people on the field. And Franklin had the team come back out and they're waving to the fans and everybody's running around and going crazy. And it just seemed very surreal, just the prolonged celebration on the field and just fans in the stands after the game, you know, probably 20,000 of them still there, just going crazy. I went back and watched uh, some of the, the film from that one the other day. It just seemed surreal because, boy, that that was eight years ago and it seems like it's 80 now. Yeah, and that was, I think, from a fan's standpoint because – and it was, I guess, was that the second win over uh, Tennessee? Yeah, because no, that was the first five. because the year before was 2011, and that was a I mean, toss-up I mean, game. Since yeah, right. There's only the second. Yeah, so Vanderbilt had at least knocked the door down, but that one was just such a thorough beating. It wasn't a last-second play like the team when Vanderbilt won down there in 05. Neither team was, I mean, both teams. Vanderbilt was good offensively, but you know, Vanderbilt was five. They're both five and six. Um, that Tennessee team in 2012 actually had a lot of talent on it, especially on offense. And, and Vanderbilt was was obviously very good that year. Um, so yeah, the, the the thing I remember about the 05 game was, and I always liked Phil Fulmer, like thought he was a you know obviously good coach, like just good coach, and obviously it seemed like a good dude and all that. But after that game, you know, I don't care if it's coach speak, but you always hear congratulate Bobby Johnson. Those guys fight over there. You know, it's easy to do that when you win. When he lost that game, his demeanor after the game, like, rock, we've hit rock bottom, blah, blah, blah. Like, I get it. You can say all that, but showed no, I don't know. It just, I always remember his, his, his reaction after that game. And again, you can, it's easy to be classy when you're winning and, and congratulate the other program. But when you, when something, that's one thing I know I'm all over the place. One thing I always appreciate about Kevin Stallings in, in, in defeat, he was always very, classy to I mean, the Georgetown game comes to mind. Uh, he was always very respectful to the program. And I just never forget about Phil Fulmer, the way he acted after that game. Oh yeah. He was very upset. And I think the next year they came here and won. And uh, there was some backstory about some celebration thing or something that he made into a big deal to get his team pumped up. And that was a topic after the game. I don't remember the details, but it seemed like there was still some carryover from that with him, even to the next season. Yeah, possibly. Um, wouldn't doubt it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, but at least it's for a long time, you know, from 82 to to 2005, the, 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 there were no wins and then another losing streak there. So whatever has happened between the two programs, Vanderbilt has, has found a way to win more than its share in recent years. You are a college football expert. What is the record like in rivalry games for winning streak of one against another? Or what are like the – the bigger ones, you know, because 22 in a row or whatever that was, I mean, that's a, that's a big number. Um, yeah, it, it's one of the biggest, I mean, Kentucky, Florida, 
if that's considered, I mean, it's a rivalry because they play every year. It's not a traditional, you know, holiday rivalry. Um, Vanderbilt was not the bit longest ever. It was one of them. Um, oh, here's one I'm that not- comes to mind. Indiana, Ohio State, that one turned over another. This was that. Is it 28 yeah. now on that one? Yeah. yeah I mean, like that's that. not a rivalry if- game, but I mean, I, sort of, but anyway. Yeah. Um, off the top of my these you can look those up. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any others. Um, seems like Kansas had one against Nebraska that went on and on and on when they were both in the big big eight, you know, to the big twelve. Um trying to think. I know Virginia had Virginia Tech had a long one over Virginia, just uh, but not not approaching that was a that was maybe like twelve, thirteen years that got snapped last year. Um, so, uh, you know, again, Vanderbilt's was one of the longer ones, but it wasn't the longest one. I think the weirdest seeming recent winning streak in a rivalry now has got to be South Carolina Clemson because Carolina won that one five years in a row and then Clemson flipped the switch. Yes. And that was, you know, uh, Steve Spurrier, a lot got that going. And then after that, I guess for a couple of years, but it's, you know, South Carolina has got the unfortunate problem which was i mean not that the programs are all the same but for a while vanderbilt was in the same state and same division as one of the best programs in the country like in the late 90s when tennessee had it absolutely rolling and now now south carolina is in the same state not in the same league but with uh you know maybe you can call clemson right now the number one program in the country they've won two of the last three national titles um so uh, is it two of the last three i think so yeah two of the last, yeah so uh, you know, I think Alabama will probably win it this year, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, those Georgia, Georgia Tech's obviously historically one sided, but Georgia Tech under Paul Johnson always found a way to win, uh, every few years in that game there. So speaking of Georgia, let's talk SEC this weekend. That Mississippi state score shocked me. I did not see that one coming, especially in Athens. Did you? No, especially since Georgia like played well offensively, or, or at least JT Daniels did. Because, um, you know, we saw Mississippi State two weeks ago, and Vanderbilt what, outgains them by 200 yards. And Mississippi State looks horrid on offense, can't do anything. I uh, can't slow down Vanderbilt for, for a lot of the game. So, yeah, I didn't see a ton of that game. I was two of my teams that I cover were playing, and I also had my in the Tennessee-Auburn game. So that was kind of fourth on my, my, my depth chart there. So I really didn't see too much of it, but yes, from a score standpoint, that was definitely a surprise, especially since Mississippi state goes down there was supposedly the under the, the threshold for scholarship minimum to play, but they, they, you know, you don't, you can still play and they opted to play. So give them credit. Not much has gone well for them lately and they go down there and they play well. That was the most un-Georgia like box score I've seen in a while. They threw for three something and ran for like 20. I didn't realize I haven't looked at that box score yet. That I did not realize that. I mean, I know JT Daniels had a good game, but uh, that's yeah, you're right. Un Georgia is a very good way of putting it. Oh no, it's worse. Okay, Georgia, and this is all JT Daniels. Twenty-eight of thirty-eight passing for four hundred one, four touchdowns, no picks, twenty-three carries for eight yards. Now twenty-one wow. of that is on sacks. So take that yeah. out. It's still twenty rushes for. For what twenty nine? That's horrible. That should that should put uh, Keon Henry Brooks to uh, make him a first round draft pick when you compare what he did to Mississippi State to, to what Georgia did. Yeah, and, and Georgia's had a running back or two who could play in its history. So, uh, yeah, or ten. Yeah, yeah. That, that that was just one of those. I didn't really watch that game because I didn't expect it to be a game. I had my eyes on Auburn, Tennessee, but I flipped that over when it was done and and just caught the tail end and. Like, how did this get here? And I saw the box score, and I couldn't believe my eyes. Uh, boy, Alabama, Kentucky. Uh, I think it's safe to say the lack of quarterback play has caught up to the Wildcats now. Yeah, it, it's going to be weird to say this with, with, with the final 66-3, to three, though. Kentucky played well early. I've kept flipping to that game, and they were moving the ball. I think they might have missed the field goal. But they got into the red zone a couple times. They had a snap. Um a bad snap that they lost like 40 yards. They actually played well early. Then I didn't, then obviously imploded after that. Uh, But it just tells you how, how good you have to be to beat a team like Alabama, like Kentucky, even before the game got out of hand, Kentucky probably played about as well as it could possibly play 
at one point is down like 14 to three or whatever. It's just, you, you got to be perfect. You got to be very, very talented and perfect to beat a team like Alabama. Yeah. It's not often you see an SEC team win conference games by 22 and 28 and then lose one by 60. Yes. That's Kentucky's season. So yeah, they, they've had a, yeah, I mean, they've had a weird season. The Ole Miss game, you know, 43-42, whatever it was. And, yeah, it's just – I mean, everyone's had a weird season. They're, theirs is uh, pretty strange. What did you make of LSU getting a win against Arkansas? Because I kind of thought that one would go the other way. Yeah, Arkansas was favored earlier in the week. Then LSU favored after that. Um, a lot of it's turnovers with Arkansas. When they're forcing turnovers, they can beat you. Um so I wasn't surprised. I mean, LSU has obviously been very, very bad defensively. And I think I may, maybe brought up the stat last week on this podcast, how they were second to last in the SEC in, in total defense. And they hadn't played an offense that was top five in the SEC. Um, and they still haven't. So, um, yeah, it, I thought it was a pick em game. And, I, you know, had I bet, I don't know who I would have picked. Uh, but that, that one didn't really surprise me. I mean, Arkansas, again, is overachieving. Sam Pittman probably deserves player. I mean, coach of the year. But LSU – it's still a talented team, even with all their issues. I think that's got to be the weirdest thing of 2020, and my goodness, there have been a lot of them. But in SEC football, the thought that before the season, you'd see an Arkansas-LSU game with Arkansas as a favorite, I don't think would have even remotely crossed anyone's mind. Well, I think it was kind of documented that it was the biggest uh, point spread swing from one year to the next uh, between two teams ever. Like, I think oh, our wow. LSU, like 40-something points last year, down to – they were eventually favored by one or two. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Arkansas last year is probably one of the worst SEC teams in the past two decades. And then LSU, who a lot of people believe is the uh, the best college football team we've ever seen. So to, if you would have said that it was going to be a pick game the next year, you know, uh, uh, obviously very surprising. I guess the thing that stood out to me nationally, or at least as pertained to this podcast, was uh, – Penn State, man, 0-5. First, first top 10 team to ever start 0-5, I believe. Is that the stat? I think so, or the, the high – yeah, because Matt Brown from The Athletic, one of my fellow editors, he tweets out he, – he's got he's like an AP historian, and he tweeted that out yesterday um, or something like that. Yeah, it's uh, shocking. I mean, there's no they, – they've been hit – I mean, no Vanderbilt's been hit a ton too, so – you know, everyone has, but Penn State's been hit some major star power with COVID opt-outs and injuries. Um, they really blew the Indiana game. That you know, the, I'm not saying they wouldn't be one and four if they would be in Indiana, but you know how seasons go. You win that game, you get more confidence and stuff like that. Because they they dominated Indiana from a st- statistical standpoint. Just let Indiana go on one late drive there. Um, so I'm not buying. I mean, it's fashionable to talk about him being on the hot seat. If you know his situation there, he's signed a new contract. He's got the support of the AD. He's done a very good job up until this point. He's not on any kind of hot seat, but it's obviously not something you would expect this season from Penn State. Who is on the hot seat? Who, uh, I'm thinking, you know, Across the, uh, I'm thinking across the country. Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech, our our writer uh, Andy Bitter had a good story about that. They owe him a lot of money, but that's clear. That that one's surprising that it's not working out there. Um, I would say Andy Bitter. I would, say, I mean Andy Bitter. He's not on the hot seat. He's a good writer. I would say Justin Fuente at, at Virginia Tech. Um, I don't like we talked about Jeremy Pruitt. There's no doubt Jeremy Pruitt's on the hot seat. There's no doubt Derek Mason's on the hot seat. Um, I'm just kind of in my head scanning the leagues. You know, there's been a lot of turnover recently. There's been a lot of talk that Gary Patterson might step away after this year. Not obviously he'd never get fired, but that he's just his run might be over at TCU. Um, I think Les Miles, it's still too early in his tenure, although it's I'm not shocked at all. It's not working out there, Uh, but they are they're as bad as they've been not showing any progress. So uh, ACC, other than Virginia Tech. I'm not. I wouldn't be shocked if I might have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. This is no information at all, but I wouldn't be shocked if David Cutcliffe stepped away. They're they're not what they've been in recent years. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think the carousel will be spinning as much as usual. But the you know, there's, there's clearly some 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 guys in the hot seat. Is there any chance Greg Schiano becomes a commodity and moves on from Rutgers, or is that one of those where he just is? I guess, happy to accept his position and then he got a second chance. I mean, and that's a pretty good situation too. 
Yeah, well, first of all, for all the in, you know, I follow Rutgers pretty closely. I'm I'm a New Jersey native. I'm not a, you know, not a Rutgers fan by any stretch, but I follow them. I follow them and I want them to do well. So um, I think I have my finger on the pulse uh, more than most. They're still one in four or whatever. I mean, they're much improved. And if I, I think he's a good fit there, I think he'll be there for a while. But let's say they go one in seven or whatever, how many games they play or one in six or two, like, how do you sell that to your fan base? You know, so my answer is no. He, no one's going to hire Greg Schiano away based on a one or two win season. And I think he is a good, a really good fit at at Rutgers. And I don't think it's the same thing. But I say like Kirby Smart is a really good coach at Georgia. I don't know how great of a coach Kirby Smart is somewhere else. Would he do well? Yeah, he would. But he just seems like he's suited for for Georgia. Like I'd say, Dan Mullen would be a good coach anywhere. I think Greg Schiano's got, there's a little bit of that Kirby Smart in him. I think he's going to be going to be a really good coach at Rutgers. I don't know how many other places he'd be a great coach, except Tennessee, of course. They probably would have won two national championships if he went there. I think I asked you this last week. Who winds up with the Carolina job? South Carolina, that is. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of movement in there. I know Shane Beamer's a guy they're going to look closely at. If I if I was, if I were a betting man, I'd say uh, Billy Napier or Shane Beamer. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing as I'm monitoring that one too. Are you surprised Jamie Chadwell is not under more consideration there? Because I am. I don't know why. I think youth is a concern for some people, but he's 43. He's coached a lot of games. I mean, when you start scanning the landscape of people you can get who have established track records. It's not as long as a list as people think. He's been a head coach at uh, two different places, too. I, I don't know how much of a factor this is, and, you know, you'd have to weigh it, but I don't believe Chadwell's ever really coached at a high major level. Has he been an assistant? And, and maybe that can scare some people away. Um, now, the last guy they had was Mr. High Major, Will Muschamp. Been a head coach, been in every major program in the country, and clearly, you know, wasn't a great hire. It, it wouldn't affect me, my decision too much, but I'm just speculating. Maybe that's one reason that, that South Carolina is shying away, that he's just has not has not swum or swam in the uh, SEC or high major waters. I'm looking that one up because I know he's been at Coastal Carolina. He's been at Charleston Southern. That's where he's been the head coach. East Tennessee State, Charleston Southern, North Greenville, Delta State, Charleston Southern, Coastal Carolina. So Okay, uh, yeah. I don't. I could be completely wrong on this, but I think if you maybe bring some assistants along who know the the landscape better, but you're still, re again, this might be naive, but you're still recruiting the same high schools. You're just not recruiting the same kids. You know what I mean? Like he's 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 there's there's kids at all the high schools in the Atlanta area that that South Carolina and Georgia recruit. And he's just not recruiting those same guys again. So you, you'd want some SEC experience on your roster. Uh, but that's not that wouldn't necessarily be a deal breaker for me. Well, to me, it is. Um, are you willing to work it? Because it takes a, just a crazy work ethic. And do you have schemes that can work? And, and the offensive scheme is is just it's nothing that you see. I mean, that they they're they run triple option, but they throw for more than they run. I mean, that just is. To me, something that's really hard to defend. Yeah, I, I, I said this at the time. I didn't know who he was. When Charleston Southern played Vanderbilt in Derek Mason's first season, they came in here and they ran a lot of option, but they threw it. I said, I don't know who this guy is. I love that offense. And I've followed his career ever since. He made, the, at the time, a weird move to go from Charleston Southern head coach to, to Coastal Carolina uh, offensive coordinator. But I guess he knew that, uh, I forgot the dude's name, the head coach. Uh, was going to retire at some point soon, and he knew they were making the move up to the FB, uh, FBS, so it worked out for him. But I have been a Jamie Chadwell fan. It's kind of the best of both worlds for me because I love the option, but it's the option with you know the a lot of passing incorporated into it. Yeah, I'm thinking you could recruit a lot of people to that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think fun off the fact that it's a, it's noted to be a fun offense. I, I would totally agree. Any other college football thoughts before we talk some hoops? Uh, no, I mean, first rankings coming out tomorrow. That will be interesting. Um, by the way, how absurd is it? And I'm not usually don't get in my soapbox and all that, that, that the, I don't know if you followed it, that the college football selection committee based on mo basically older men 
in this time where everyone is learning to work from home, everyone is learning to do things on Zoom, they're flying to Dallas every week to meet as a committee. And, you know, they're saying, well, we're asking these players to fly over the country. So we thought we should do it, too. I, to me, that's absurd. You can get on a Zoom call or conference call and do the life changing work of ranking 20 teams, you know, five weeks or six, seven weeks out. So, OK, yeah, that's, my- that does seem a little right. A little much. So I'll be I'll be interested to see what happens with, with those. Um, there's you know always interesting, uh, but the committee over the years has shown the propensity to flip teams. So just because a team's ranked higher than another team now, that doesn't mean they will be later. So you know you got to take them with a grain of salt. So no, that's that's uh, basically uh, basically it in football. Vandy basketball. Um, what's your take on how good they'll be this year? I tell you in a month. Why? Well, actually, that's probably bad. They might not have any games. Uh, I just—it's hard for me to get interested in basketball with all of the, and not Vanderbilt basketball. I'm talking just in general because you just there's so been so many cancellations the past few hours, few days, uh, and the lack of consistencies and scheduling and all this stuff. So I don't know. I, I'm very intrigued. Like we've talked about all off season, the roster's deeper than it's been. They don't have the star power, clearly um at the top but if dj harvey's as good as they say he is and dylan DeSue has made the jump which i think he's capable of making if harvey's good and DeSue and pippen make f- freshman to sophomore year jumps that i think they can make i think this team has a chance to be pretty good or much better put it in the uh you know the 7 and 11 sec range and if that's the case then you can say okay there's some real hope moving forward uh because almost everyone would be back and uh, the roster's still you know, relatively young there. So um, I'm interested to see how good they are defensively because uh, we know that's something that Jerry Stackhouse preaches. And and, and what's the offense going to look like? You, if you followed the draft process, you saw a lot of praise for Stackhouse on his ability to get Aaron Neesmith open shots and and do a lot of stuff to, to free him up. So without a clear go-to guy like Neesmith, now they did a lot of stuff for, you know, Saban Lee was, had the ability to break down defenses last year. They don't have that player on the roster this year. So I'm kind of interested to see what they do offensively. I suspect they're going to be a better offensive club than defensive club because they've got a good point guard for one thing. I think Scottie Pippen Jr. is better than any of us thought he would be. By the way, I'm surprised he was second team all SEC. I, I, I that, and that was from the coaches. And, co- you know, I think that that's a good sign for Vanderbilt that the coaches, because um, a lot of times you, sorry to interrupt you, but, you know, writers, you know how it works. And, ooh, Scottie Pippen, I know that name. Vanderbilt, he averaged 10 points as a freshman. Like, you know, I, I could, I, if you would have told me he was going to be second team by the media or the coaches, I probably would have guessed media based on reputation. So the fact that the coaches did it, I think is a good sign for Vanderbilt. Yeah, I guess I wasn't as shocked. He averaged 12 a game as a freshman, usually when you do that. Um, it's a sign you can play, and, and he's so good with the ball. Um, sees the floor really well. You could argue DeSue's their best player, potentially. Uh, and, and that's good when you can say, well, he's second team all SEC, but he may not be their best player. But where I'm concerned, and from what little has leaked out of practice, I hear defense is a concern for them. Uh, and last year, you look, I mean, they ranked 221 on the defensive end in Ken Palm, which is the worst they've ever been. So, you know, I think the two things that concern me, if you want to look from a numbers standpoint, it's that where they ranked last year. And I go back and look at where they were in Ken Palm when they had Neesmith. And they were still only, uh, what was it, 126 heading into the the uh, what was the first game they had without him? Texas A and M. So yeah. even even with Saban Lee and Neesmith, they still didn't crack the top 100 in Ken Palm. They really didn't have any significant wins. I mean, all the teams they played that were pretty good, uh, for the most part, you know, they lost those games. I guess their best win was Davidson, which probably would have been an NIT team at best, and, and probably not even that. So I guess I look at it and say, are they better trading Neesmith? And Lee, and and again, I know that Neesmith didn't play the whole year, but I go by where they left off with him. When you look at it, when you look at it from one standpoint, you say, well, okay, they've got a deeper roster, more players, freshman to sophomore improvement, all those things. That's one way to look at it and say, well, just having more bodies is going to help them a lot. They've got a chance to improve. But then I look at where they left off and think, well, would I trade those two guys 
for the experience and everything else that they picked up in the recruiting class? And I think my answer is no, so I'm a little conflicted about what to think here. I just think their overall numbers killed them late last year, even though they played better late in the year. I mean, I, I reread this story I did on uh, Drew Weikert for The Athletic his against the, the Georgia game. At the end of the first half against Georgia, they had three walk-ons in, Educa, uh, Obena, and Saban Lee against an SEC team. I, that's they're not going to be close to that this year. And that you know they've got a more experienced Desu, a more experienced Pippen, uh, two transfers stepping in. So I see your point. And looking back, the the first part of last year was disappointing. But again, they were playing with a lot of new players, with a lot of freshmen uh, incorporating into the lineup there. So um, I would trade off the the more bodies and you know again because you're just when you're playing three walk they had a lot of times where they're playing two walk-ons at a time last year um playing rotational minutes and that just won't be the case this year I remember being at that game sitting on the floor in press row and thinking for that last three or four minutes this has got to be the worst five an SEC team has ever put on the floor in the midst of a contested game yeah and they should have won the game too. yeah it took a 40 footer and a bad call. Horrible call. Remember oh, they, that's right. The call on the baseline. I'd forgotten Braley, that. Braley Albert out of bounds um, on an offensive rebound. Yeah, so. which he was like, I think, inbounds by several inches. But Yeah, clearly. So the season went. Uh, well, any other talk on Vandy before we hit some SEC things with hoops for a minute? Uh not really. I watched some of the uh, the women's soccer game last, last yesterday. I'm a big Darren Ambrose fan. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with him. He is an all-time good guy, so I, I I was happy to see his team win. When I was in college, I was friends with a lot of women's soccer players, and that was back in the days uh, pre or the SEC was just starting for 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 women's soccer. So I uh, was happy to see them win. Yeah, uh, good story. Two years in a row they've done that, I think, right? Did they win the tournament last year? No, they won the SEC East last year and the overall SEC title two years okay. ago. Gotcha. So. Yeah, good good for them. Um, I guess big story on SEC hoops is Auburn taking probation this year in a year that maybe they weren't going to make the tournament anyway. Um, and the weird thing about that situation, that was because of the Chuck Person mess, and that was Person really arranging more or less to, to get kids into the hands of agents, which you know generally gets them out of college earlier. I don't know. That's one take I've heard on it is that like the infractions there that they got busted for really did not help Auburn. Now, maybe that's one of those things where it's like the busted taillight uh, that you get yeah. a guy on and, and catch him for other. And, and God knows Bruce Pearl uh, is not exactly squeaky clean, to put it mildly. But that that's just sort of a weird deal with Auburn, given the nature of the allegations uh, and now sort of choosing to take its medicine on the eve of a weird year that a lot of people think wasn't going to be great for them anyway. Yeah. Well, I think you hit it with the tail light. I think there's a lot more there with the FBI probe and those who know more are speculating that, you know, Auburn was going, was about to be hit hard and will still be hit hard that this won't really matter. And I don't know if you saw today, Sharif Cooper, their freshman point guard, five-star hasn't been with the pre program for several weeks, evidently or months. And, there's investigation about his eligibility and he might go overseas and stuff. So, um, they, yeah, that I wouldn't be surprised if they get hit hard very soon. What's up winning the league this year? I mean, I think Tennessee, I Kentucky obviously has tons of talent. I think Tennessee might have the best overall college basketball roster. Not, not talking like overall talent as far as NBA talent. Um, Florida, I think, can be very good, but they've been decimated by COVID and non-practicing and not having no continuity at all. Um, so I, I think Tennessee having a very veteran team will it will help them uh, navigate this. Although it just came down to the, their little four-team classic that they were about to host this week has been canceled due to COVID. Rick Barnes. So um, assuming the league gets played, I you know I, this isn't groundbreaking. I think it'd be either Tennessee, Kentucky, or Florida. I, my pick would probably be Tennessee. Do you think Kentucky is just in a sort of a temporary lull right now? Because, I mean, this has not been the, the top five Kentucky team that we kind of got accustomed to. I mean, this has been more like a top 20 team. Uh, and that's kind of where Kentucky is this year. 
or is this kind of like what Vanderbilt baseball got for a couple of years where, you know, they, they kind of had the lull between 2015 and, and a couple of years ago where, I mean, those were different circumstances, right? And they got back to being an elite program. But where do you think this is headed with Kentucky? Or is this just a kind of a wall where he's run into where he's built it on one-and-done talent uh, and this just isn't going to be able to get it done long-term, especially with Duke and people like that uh, kind of copying that model and, and sort of beating him in his own game. Yeah, well, I don't pretend to – I mean, I follow recruiting as far as where people go and who's going where, but I don't – as far as scouting and say, oh, this year's five or better because they fit better. Like, I don't – couldn't pretend to know that. I just think it's very difficult. It's, I mean, they've had a lot of success and it's the way he's doing it. I think it's very difficult to have turnover your roster every year and expect to be in the hunt. I mean, from a talent standpoint, you're in the hunt, but it's, it's, it's difficult. It's there's, there's chemistry issues. There's continuity. There's learning your system. Now they've been able to sprinkle in some veterans. Uh, they get, you know, SAR coming in the wake force transfer that will help. Uh, I think it, it, and they, they had some, they had some, Veterans last year, like Nick Richards and uh, EJ Montgomery, who, you know, went off to the NBA but weren't drafted. So I, I don't know the answer to that question, Chris. I just don't think it's just it's a very difficult formula. And Duke's found it very difficult. They had three uh, what lottery picks on their team two years ago. And I forgot where they lost. They, they didn't make the final four. It's 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 very, very difficult to win it all when you turn over your roster every year. Yeah, and here's what I mean by this. I'm looking at Ken Palm ratings, okay? Um, go back to 2010, they're four. 2011, seven. 2012, one. 2013, 55. That was the the kind of the one-off year where they went to the NIT. Uh, then 2014, they're 13. 2015, back to one. 2016, six. 2017, 17. Uh, 2018, excuse me. Uh, 2018, they're 17, 2019, they're eight. And then last year they're 29. And again, this year, a lot of people picking them as a top 20 team, but not a, not a top 10. So, uh, I don't really expect you to have a response to that, but just in case people were wondering where I was coming from, uh, that's it. Anyway, Mitch, uh, we've gone on a while. I was going to see if you had anything else that we, we wanted to get into before we ended the show today. Not really. We covered, uh. We covered the entire spectrum, I think. Yeah, and maybe if we're lucky, there'll be some sports to discuss next week. Yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, I haven't, you, you might have heard some stuff. You mentioned the Tennessee issues. I haven't heard any issues from the Tennessee camp. I'll, I'll reach out to David Ubbin, our writer, Tennessee writer, but uh, clearly hope that game's played this week. Yeah, and Vandy was way above its number last week. Now, that included some walk-ons and such, but there were there are plenty of kids there. Yeah, good. So, so anyway. hopefully, hopefully it, gets, it happens. Mitch, tell folks where they can find your work online and where they can follow you on Twitter. At uh, Mitch Light on Twitter and um, online. Haven't done much writing lately. Did a lot more um, in my previous position at The Athletic. Hopefully I'll do some at some point, but busy uh, knee-deep in the college football stuff. So, uh, But uh, you can read all of our great college football coverage at The Athletic. Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. You too as well, Chris. Take care. He is Mitch Light of The Athletic. I'm Chris Lee, the host of the Vandy Sports Podcast. We appreciate you listening. Hope to have at least one more episode later this week, so be sure and